Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Dr. Eric Lederman, National Leader for Privacy, Security, and IT Infrastructure with the Permanente Federation. I'm Anthony Guerra, founder and editor-in-chief. Dr. Lederman, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be on. Thanks for inviting me. All right, great. So um, tell us a little bit, let's start off, tell us a little bit about your organization and your role. Um, You know, everyone's heard of Kaiser Permanente. But the Permanente Federation could probably use a little clarity. So tell us a little bit about that entity. Well, Kaiser Permanente is an interesting organization, the way it's structured. Most organizations are corporations, right? They have a board of directors, a CEO, and a bunch of people who, are, who work for that CEO on down. Uh, in our case, we actually have multiple companies that consist of or come together as Kaiser Permanente, bound by unique contracts, you know, one to the other. So we have eight medical groups, Permanente medical groups, and those are the physicians. And in the case of the California medical groups, including my own, uh, also most of the employees. And uh, the Permanente Federation is a small organization that supports all of our medical groups across the country. I also work for the Permanente Medical Group, which is the one in Northern California. So I've got multiple hats, multiple roles. Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, uh, who we're tightly partnered with, uh, is the organization that, uh, well, they sell the insurance, right? And they administer the insurance. They also own the buildings and they have IT and stuff, things like that. It's a mutually uh, you know, interdependent relationship between the Kaiser side and the Permanente side. I, I work on the Permanente side. Obviously. Okay, very good. And your role, a little bit about your role. It's, it's an interesting role. I think we're seeing more. I think when I saw you recently at a conference in Boston, and you mentioned that you've been in sort of the security area of, of medicine for quite a while, the IT security area. Um, but I think we're going to, we're starting to see some more individuals who are physicians uh, specializing in cyber. So even though you've been at it a while, I think, I wonder if you would agree that it also is sort of a, picking up steam now. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how to, it's interesting saying specialized in, you know, that's sort of a, a medical term. I mean, my my specialty is internal medicine. I'm a physician. I t- see patients. Uh, and I also do this other work, uh, the privacy and security work is part of what I do. But it's an important part, you know, protecting our information, protecting our patients, protecting ourselves, you know, is critically important. If we, if we don't, then everything that we do, everything that we've built is at risk. And, uh, and so, you know, I got involved with this kind of early on when I was uh, involved with uh, developing sort of some homegrown systems to uh, another organization to uh, provide access to information electronically and then uh, you know, implementing a vendor electronic health record. You know, I realized pretty early on that, uh, you know, if we didn't also attend to the protection side, we were building our castle on sand and it would ultimately risk collapse. And so... Uh, I've been focusing on both sides, you know, for a long, long time. And uh, I'm glad to see, you know, that there have been, as you point out, you know, more and more, uh, still a relatively small group of us, but more and more physicians who are engaged in this space. Because, you know, the challenges that uh, cybersecurity professionals know what they're doing. I mean, they, I, I really like working with my colleagues who are cybersecurity professionals. They know how to protect us, but they don't know how to protect us while still allowing us to do the complex work of patient care, um, that's something that we need to partner on. You know, it's, it's very straightforward to impose controls 
to reduce cyber risk, but those controls often can increase operational and therefore patient care risk in a patient care organization. And so it's a it's a partnership. I don't pretend to know what they know, and uh, although I know some of it, and uh, you know, I think they, I, I venture to say, I think they have found the uh, the partnership uh, useful and and uh, you know effective from their perspective. But I would leave it to them in a separate interview uh, to ask them that question. So you obviously you're making great points here. I mean, there's there's no question about it, and the usability issue is is the most important thing, right? As you said, I mean, implementing security controls and locking everything down, anybody can do that, right? It's it's how do we do it while maintaining usability? And I think what you're saying is usability is is defined by the user, and you are representing the physician to help the cyber folks understand what usability means to them in terms of the speed they have to work at, the information they want available, what interferes with their workflow. So if that's the key, right? So because they may institute something or implement something or want to implement something in a way that they think is reasonable, but you'll say no, because of the way physicians work, we need to do this a different way or we can't do it that way. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, that's, that's a unidirectional approach. And yes, I do all those things, although I don't typically try to say no, I typically try to say, well, how about this other way? You know, why don't we think this, uh, how we can achieve both reduction of the risks that you're focusing on and without increasing risks on the patient care side, or even better yet, we've had a few wins where we've reduced risk on both sides, which is really, you know, a great achievement. But I also, you know, uh, engage the other direction, right? I mean, I work with my physician and other clinical colleagues, not just physicians, you know, to understand security risks. I mean, the fact is that, you know, ultimately, uh, almost all successful attacks start with social engineering, mm -hmm. conning people. Phishing is the most prevalent way of doing this, but it's not the only way. I mean, uh, people making phone calls is a is another way, you know, or, or text. We've all suffered from this, right? We all get these in our personal lives and maybe even also in our professional lives. You know, I work closely with my colleagues. I, I have tens of thousands of physicians and hundreds of thousands of other clinical colleagues who I work with who, who really, you know, need to understand the risks of security and what they can do about it for two reasons. One is to protect our organization, but the other is to protect themselves. You know, the way I've explained uh, to, uh, you know, I've said countless times to my to my compliance and, and cyber colleagues about uh, the folks who are on the right-hand side of the tail who are, you know, clicking on multiple test phishing emails, you know, over and over again, is these people are not our enemy. These people are at risk. They probably have their bank accounts cleaned out already. We need to help them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. If they're clicking on everything at work, we assume they're also having some challenges in their personal life, right? Right. Exactly. What would you say is is the main thing that people who are non-clinicians don't understand about the way doctors work or the sensitivities that they may have to interference in their workflow? So if you were speaking to a CISO at a health system who didn't have a lot of clinical background, clinical experience, maybe they were new in healthcare, what would you want them to understand about the way physicians work and the things that most bother them? 
Well, I think the most common misconception is that the way to understand aberrant behavior is to look for behavior that's not like the norm. Now, on the face of it, this sounds obviously true, but in medical care, it's obviously wrong. The reason is that while folks do the normal stuff we expect of them over and over again, a lot of the time, maybe even 80 plus percent of the time, some of the time they have to do different things. And those different things can be driven by operational reasons or patient reasons. So for example, operational reasons. So all of a sudden, you know, there's been some kind of mini crisis, you know, a bunch of people called out sick or whatever. We have to suddenly delegate, you know, or, or move people <clears throat> from their normal jobs into these other jobs temporarily. Uh, and by the way, this happens constantly in hospitals. You know, a nurse will show up for work and say, you know what? You were going to work on this unit, but we need you to work over on this unit or we need you to cover lunch over here or whatever. This happens constantly. Mm -hmm. But also patients change their status and sometimes very rapidly. If you have a patient that goes from stable to unstable or trying to die really unstable over a short period of time, all kinds of folks who had nothing whatsoever to do with that patient's care 10 seconds ago are going to be descending upon them and needing access to their information and access to the patient and ability to write orders, et cetera, and do things, you know, very quickly without any frictions because, you know, time is of the essence. If somebody's having a stroke, you know, every second they're losing, you know, thousands of brain cells and they're not going to come back. We need to do something now mm -hmm. to fix that. If somebody's, you know, uh, heart has stopped, the oxygen is no longer flowing to their brain or other vital organs. You know, we got to do something about that or else they're not coming back. And anything that slows down ability to access information or be able to take care of patients, um, basically, specifically adversely affects really sick people. And, and ironically, uh, attention can be focused on people who are considered VIPs, right? So if you have somebody who's considered, well, you know, especially at risk or, you know, kid gloves, maybe it's the CEO of the organization or it's the governor or the mayor or some, you know, sports star or A-lister actor, well, you know, they're going to be treated like they need to lock things down even more. But uh, if you put these two things together and you take one of these VIPs that's getting really sick and you impose these kinds of frictions and controls, you're basically creating a situation where your organization selectively kills off VIPs who are getting sick. And that's really not a great business model. So that's very interesting. Um, and that can happen, you think, if, if sort of cyber measures are instituted um, in, a, in a sort of a rough way, in, in, not a, in not a sophisticated, nuanced way, you can wind up with a situation where you're preventing access to needed information based on roles and responses. One of the biggest things they want to do, identity and access management. This is one of the main things that cyber folks want to put it. It's very difficult to do. There's lots of people in hospital. As you said, roles are changing constantly, but this is one of the main ways, one of the main controls that they're using. I think your point is that, yeah, that's great and that's important, but let's play out some scenarios here and we could see where doing that and somebody jumps in, as you said, when somebody's uh, crashing, a patient's crashing, certain people need to jump in and have access to that information. If you've got really tight access management based on identities, 
they may not have that and there's no time to give it to them. Is this sort of the scenario we're talking about here where cyber can get in the way of patient care? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you an example. So I was talking to a colleague recently um, who used to work at NASA, right? Uh, you know, a cybersecurity professional. And they were explaining to me that um, the Office of Personnel Management, uh, your you know, listeners probably remember they got hit, had their clock cleaned uh, probably by the Chinese, you know, a number of years back. Uh, they got religion around uh, cyber controls as a result and in, insisted on imposing those on everybody else, right? And so, you know, they told NASA, you've got to have two-factor authentication on your workstations in mission control at NASA, okay? So that means you're, you're in the, probably one of the most secure buildings in the world, would be my guess. I mean, <clears throat> I'm sure... I'm pretty confident they're not letting anybody just walk into mission control, right? You know, and uh, and yet they have to use two-factor authentication every time they log in to their workstations in there. So they try to insist on that with us as well, you know, at the, around the same time. And and we said, well, you know, we'll do multi-factor authentication on all of our devices, including those in our buildings that we own and control. We're going to do it a little differently. And so what we did is we put a security certificate on every one of our managed workstations, and then we they declared that the workstation itself was the second factor because it's, you know, not going anywhere. It's in our building. It's managed by us, you know, electronically, and it has a security certificate on it. And so, therefore, the clinicians logging in just continue to use their user ID and password, right? And nobody's mm -hmm. fumbling trying to find their token or their phone or whatever, or maybe they left, left it at home because they rushed in. They're on call and there's somebody who's really, really sick. And now they can't take care of them. We don't want any of those scenarios. So anyway, basically, there are ways to try to thread the needle. And uh, you know, that's an example of one way that we tried to be creative about. Very good. Very good. I'm going to kind of ask you an open-ended question. You know, at the, um, at the conference, uh, you, you talked about, you know, what you just mentioned around insider threats, um, snooping, and that kind of a thing, people poking in. You mentioned VIPs. Uh, and how ironically um, VIPs having their information kind of locked down because they're VIPs and you don't want snooping can put them at a higher risk, which is kind of interesting. You also talked about something at the conference called false positives and how that can damage, I guess, a cyber program uh, because you just get burned out. You're looking at too many things that aren't going anywhere and it makes you... Uh, like the boy who cried wolf, right? How many times are you going to go chase down something? Tell me a little bit more about the false positive uh, concept you were talking about, specifically uh, the scenarios that you're thinking of. Well, the, the term to describe it has been called alert fatigue. And it's not unique to cyber. It's not unique to IT. You know, I mean, uh, alert fatigue can happen on analog devices. You know, um, I remember... Long time ago in my career, there was uh, a uh, an attempt by folks uh, in a particular hospital. This is probably pretty early on. They decided that they would alert the nurses at the nurses station that a patient, you know, uh, had something going on. Maybe their cardiac monitor showed something abnormal by having a uh, flashing red light, you know, on in the nurses station. And they went back to check on it, you know, a week or two later, and they found that uh, it was covered in several layers of tape that the nurses had basically blotted it out physically, right? right. They just couldn't take it anymore. Right. And, you know, uh, and there are lots of examples where uh, pharmacists, you know, uh, just can't take it anymore. I mean, uh, the 
uh, alert levels for pharmacy information systems historically have been set way too low. And so lots and lots of meaningless or not meaningful or not significantly meaningful alerts are fired. And, you know, how do you sort out the wheat from the chaff? You know, I mean, it's just overwhelming and it's it leads to ignoring all the alerts. This is true in cyber as well. You know, so if you have a system that uh, is alerting to the possibility of uh, somebody misusing their privileges or maybe, you know, somebody uh, or, or an attacker in the system, but the, but it's, it's firing off too many false positives, then humans just can't take it. I mean, they just, their only way they can defend against it is by just ignoring all these alerts. You can't go chasing down a hundred false trails to find one real uh, event. You have to set things so that at most, maybe in my experience, you know, uh, people can tolerate about 20, 30% false positives. So, you know, if, if there are, 10 hits, people can tolerate chasing down two or three falsies, but you know, the rest of them are real. They can, they can deal with that. But if, if, if it's much more than that, it's very hard psychologically to manage. And so if you have a system where you're having people monitor, you know, the term in IT is eyes on glass and you've set it up so that, uh, they're just being overwhelmed with, with false positives, you really don't have eyes on glass. You just have eyes glazed over. Right. And so you have to be able to accept a certain amount of risk there, right? Because if you're trying to look at everything because you're afraid something's going to slip through, you have to say that we can't do that. So we're going to have to say, okay, maybe something's going to slip through, but we have to, <clears throat> we have to get to that rate you talked about. Can't be higher than that 2030. Otherwise we just, it's just not going to work. So we're going to have to live with the, 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 the outlier getting through, right? Well, yeah, right. There are different ways to manage this. So, you know, some organizations externalize the alert fatigue, right? So we've all had this experience where we're shopping and our credit card gets declined because yeah. we're in a different city than we're used to, right? Yeah. And and so there, the, the financial services company has externalized the alert fatigue to us as individuals, right? <laughs> and so we, we have to call them and explain that it's a false positive, right? So, you know, that doesn't work really well in healthcare, you know, so... <laughs> That's you can't say, oh, well, you can't you can't get access to that patient. Oops, sorry. You know, after an hour later, after you've gotten a hold of the help desk. Oh, yeah. Well, the patient expired in the meantime. <laughs> sorry. You know, we can't do that. So, you know, there, there is uh, you could say you have to accept a certain amount of risk, but I, I would put it differently. I would say you have to balance the risks so that you have the lowest aggregate risk. There's no way to make risk disappear. Any attempts to push a single risk down to near zero is just going to push other risks up. You got to look at the forest, not just one tree at a time. What else? So if, if you know, your day-to-day, -day, the stuff you're working on right now, um, like what are some of the big issues that you're working through on the cyber front and, and sort of trying to help the, the entity that you work for manage like what's at the top of your top three on your list or whatever you want to do one or two, whatever. Well, you know, it's, boy, that's, uh, I, I would say holistically, Anthony, uh, that the, the threat landscape just keeps evolving, right? I mean, the, the risks keep changing our adversaries are well-funded partly because we, the larger we, keep funding them. We pay them, you know, with the larger we. I'm not mm -hmm. talking about my organization right. per se, but I'm saying that 
you know, they, they extract a whole lot of money. Uh, they either steal it directly or they charge ransom or whatever. And, uh, and then they, they invest in R and D, you know, I mean, uh, it's what worries me is that uh, we may be constantly prepared to fight the last battle and maybe not the next battle. It's sort of a, you know, maybe a meta way to have worry about it. But, uh, you know, these specific worries I have, oftentimes, you know, we find ways to mitigate those. But what about the next thing that we haven't figured out yet? This is great, great concern to me. I'll just give you, you know, one sort of really large example, which a lot of people talk about and write about, which is the uh, maybe imminent, maybe not so imminent onset of quantum commu- computing, right? But will, will quantum computing basically destroy all our defenses? Will quantum computing make encryption irrelevant? And, you know, will just allow uh, adversaries to crack all our passwords immediately and uh, crack all our communications? I mean, I don't know. I mean, that seems like a very frightening uh, you know, future. Uh, are we prepared for that? What is coming up, you know, next, and what's coming up a little bit later? That I guess those are the things that that uh, keep me awake sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. That quantum computing concept of that that singularity or whatever you want to call it, the day when they they get that done. Hopefully, um, the good guys are ready for that or preparing for that day, and they kind of like an arms race, right? It really is an arms race. Um, that you have to keep outlasting the opponent. AI is another thing that you worry about, that the bad guys will figure out how to use it better than the good guys and faster. And, the, you know, they'll somehow manage to th- start an attack, you know, leveraging AI and maybe quantum computing, right? That's the fear. You talk about the fear is is what could happen. So what do we do? We just do our best every day? Well, AI, I was actually, as you know, at the conference, I was uh, on a panel talking about AI and cybersecurity. Uh, yeah, you know, there are a lot of risks that AI poses to us, a lot of promise uh, that AI holds for healthcare, you know. Uh, but in terms of the risk side, AI holds the possibility of allowing rapid uh, development of attacks against vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. You know, map up, define all our vulnerabilities are all the vulnerabilities in this organization and, you know, create an attack uh, pattern for me. I mean, it could be that A, the people who are sophisticated will get better tools and the people who are unsophisticated will grow in large numbers and will have many more people attacking us or many more organizations. The other thing is that on the positive side, AI could be used to find vulnerabilities in the software development process and eliminate that. And so there's the hope that, at new software coming out would be less at risk, maybe substantially less at risk, but that still creates a legacy risk for us because we've got all this old software. Right? And that, therefore there's an imbalance. The attackers with the AI, at least for some period of time, maybe a decade or more, would have better use of it than our use in terms of defense. And therefore we'll be on the back foot. Also, of course, as all my CISO colleagues know, and as some of them periodically mention to me, the uh, attackers only have to get it right once. We have to get it right all the time. It's uh, There's a fundamental imbalance anyway. Yeah, at the beginning of our, our talk today, um, you said that one of the reasons that you became interested in cyber was that you didn't want 
healthcare to be built on a, a, a house of sand, uh, the expression you used. A foundation uh, of sand. Yeah. foundation of sand. That, that's right. Foundation makes more sense. Um, a lot of times when I, when, when I do interviews with different cyber folks or listen to presentations, read articles, that's what I feel like. I feel like it it currently is built on a foundation of sand in the sense that it's extremely vulnerable. And I wonder if you feel the same way or if you feel a little more confident in the ability of health systems to um, survive being perhaps targeted. And maybe that's a different scenario, sort of the general state of things versus winding up in the crosshairs of a nation state for some reason, maybe because of the research you have going on or something. And I think there's very few folks that have a high degree of confidence in their ability to withstand being specifically targeted. Anyway, your thoughts around my concern that things are fairly fragile. Well, as I understand it, remember, I'm not a cybersecurity professional, but I work with many cybersecurity professionals. So I'll tell you what I've learned from them. Uh, I think I've got this about right. Most of the nation states um, are not interested in being found out, right? So they're not going to basically detonate ransomware on, on in our environment and, you know, make clear that we know that they're there and that we want to pay them. They're, they want to come in very stealthily and they want to take our data. Maybe it's research data. Maybe it's you know, troves of patient data. I mean, this all started, of course, in 2015 with the with the big Anthem hack and then OPM. You know, as I understand it, this is uh, a, probably a cyber espionage play, right? But so, have we already had our clock clean that way? Maybe we don't know. <laughs> you know, so that there's there are those some nation states, as I understand it, uh, are sort of mafia states, and they're they act more like uh, cyber gangs. And then maybe they do want to come in and uh, extract money out of us by any means necessary, just like cyber gangs do. The cyber gangs, so many of them are, are, as I understand it, are are very uh, wealthy at this point, as I mentioned. I mean, they've got resources to allow attack against us. How do we know this? Well, one way we can know is we can see the impact. I mean, we've had one large health system after another getting hit and taken down, including Sometimes whole countries. I mean, look what happened to Ireland. You know, their whole health system got taken down. You know? And uh, <clears throat> uh, but even in the United States, I mean, very large health systems getting hit. I mean, if you think on the face of it, I would think on the face of it that uh, a large health system would have the resources to invest in cybersecurity and defend itself. Maybe they weren't doing enough. Maybe they were, and they got hit anyway. Mm-hmm. You know? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very frightening. I mean, I feel constantly like we're in the trenches in World War One, and uh, we're seeing uh, the guy over there just got blown up and the guy over there just got shot. When's my turn? You know, it's, it's very, very scary. Uh, excellent point. And I, I think very well said. Um, and it does give you a lot of anxiety. And so one of the ways to deal with that anxiety, one of the ways to process it or or how, how sort of precarious everything is, is that uh, operational resilience, which is if and when the systems are not available, how prepared are we to continue operations or how prepared are we to decide in what ways we're going to try and continue where, when and how are we rerouting patients 
How do we keep that fluid situation handled properly? How do we give people some idea or some preparation to be able to operate and provide clinical care without the systems that they're used to, without the tools that some of the younger ones have never operated without? So I'd imagine that's also a big part of what you think about, perhaps, uh, and work with the cyber folks and the clinical folks, because we want to be able to 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 move forward somehow. Um, what are your thoughts there? Well, two things. First, I think there's more and more awareness about that, Anthony. You know, we've been working in my organization for quite some time on developing operational resilience. I mean, it's a long journey. We've got a lot to do. We've done a lot already, but we've got a lot more to do. I think other organizations are are doing this as well, or at least tackling it. I'd say that the evidence in uh, effectiveness of operational resilience, however, unfortunately, isn't really obvious quite yet. I mean, if you look at how long uh, health systems' basic functions, basic technology functions, like electronic health records, are down for after a ransomware attack, it hasn't really changed in the last few years. You know, it's just still, you know, three, four, five, six weeks. You know, it hasn't really changed. And uh, the, uh, the impacts on the ground, which are often hard to discern. I mean, so for instance, some of these, you know, health system attacks over the last year, year and a half or so, uh, we haven't been able to get any information from any of the directly affected folks in those health systems because they, I guess their lawyers tell them not to talk to anybody, which I think is highly problematic and dysfunctional for all of us. Mm-hmm. But so where do we get our information? Well, some of it's, you know, individual clinicians posting on Reddit or other sites. And, and so we, we take the crumbs where we can find them. But what we find is weeks in, there's still chaos, pen and paper, no phones. How could that be, right? So you don't have operational resilience yet in most of these systems, it seems. And as a result, patients are at great risk. The clinicians are at terrible, terrible situations, you know, and terrible risk themselves. I mean, who wants to work that way? We've at, Through the pandemic, we've had a lot of people leaving clinical care because of burnout. Uh, this is only going to contribute to it. And so <clears throat> this, this is a critically important area. But on the other hand, you know, it's a, it's a tough sell in a, in a tough financial environment, which many healthcare organizations find themselves in, because in effect, it's insurance, right? It's insurance that you hope never to use. And so it's a cost center, like all these protections are. This is a constant battle. So uh, in effect, I think that what we all have to do is to, all of us who are in a position to sell these ideas to senior leadership is to make it clear that it's not really a matter of if anymore, whether we're going to get hit. It's just a matter of when, you know, the sophistication of the attackers and the persistence of the attackers is such that we could probably just count on it. Hopefully it'll happen further out in the future when we're more ready, but we've got to get ready. I think that's the argument that we all have to make. Uh, Interesting. You know, Let's talk a little bit about providing clinical care without certain tools. And I wonder if it's fair to ask physicians who perhaps cannot order imaging, and I'm no clinician by any means, although my wife is a nurse practitioner. I've heard a few things here and there. Um, but, I, you know, it, it, tell me if this analogy makes sense. It's like you have a carpenter and they have their tools and you say, go build a house. And they say, sure. 
And then you take that same carpenter and you take all their tools away and you say, go build a house. And they stand there and look at you and say, what are you kidding me? So I don't know if that's at all an apt comparison, but I would imagine there's certain things that if you can't do as a clinician, you wind up like Galen from the Roman Empire trying to practice 2000 years ago without, you know, because you can't do any imaging. Maybe you can't order blood tests. I don't know. But where does what are your thoughts around that? Um, If you even want to address that, I just find it an interesting question. Yeah, you know, uh, interestingly enough, um, it appears based on what I've understood uh, that the biomedical equipment itself typically is not directly attacked by ransomware attackers. I mean, maybe that'll change. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Everything's possible. But so far, the lab analyzers, for instance, don't seem to be attacked. The uh, imaging modalities, the CAT scanners, the plain film, x-ray machines, you know, uh, MRI, et cetera, you know, continue to operate. What, what goes down is the, uh, the, the network, the, uh, op- the operating systems that basically run everything, you know, the, the pharmacy information system, the laboratory information system, the imaging information system, the electronic health record. And these become either inaccessible or flat out, you know, uh, either attacked or taken down so they won't be attacked, right? And so from what I understand uh, in my conversations with those who are willing to talk to me and my colleagues about this, it's possible to get labs done at a limited degree, and it's possible to get radiology studies done to a limited degree. But the ability to uh, get the results of those studies is extremely Restricted. So uh, typically, as I understand it, in organizations that have been hit with ransomware, the only place that you can view the image that was acquired is on the machine that acquired it. So you have to find out which machine that was and mm-hmm. go to the machine physically mm-hmm. and look at it. And while you're looking at the image on that patient, no other patients can have their images acquired, right? It's one or the other. You either look or you acquire, right? Mm-hmm. So throughput is drastically reduced. And then in terms of the labs, not only without a um, laboratory information system, uh, using the analyzers directly is extremely slow compared to you know, using uh, laboratory information systems. So your throughput for labs is greatly reduced. And how do you get the, uh, the information back to the folks who need it? So obviously the person who ordered the lab, mm-hmm. hopefully the lab knows who that is. And you can use runners, maybe a, a vacuum tube system if it's in a hospital. But what about the other folks who need to know that lab result? Consultants or others who get t- care for the patient? No way for the lab to know who they are. And in the absence of an electronic health record, how are they supposed to access the information? It all becomes extremely problematic. And our phone systems are not analog. They're IP. Mm-hmm. They go down too. How do people call each other? You know, what about directories? Who's on call? Mm-hmm. Who's on call right now for this specialty? How do I reach them? Cell phones will still work, but do we have each other's cell phone numbers? I mean, yeah, you have to start thinking in terms of preparation this way. What will we still have? What will we not have? How can we make best use of it? So, for instance, something as simple as every single day, every hospital prints out at least one copy of who's on call and what their cell phone numbers are. And then if necessary, if that's the day they get hit, and somebody runs to the copy machine and makes a thousand copies and just starts handing them out to everybody. I mean, there's just simple mitigations, but you have to think this way. 
Right. And the copier has to have ink and it has to have paper and someone's got to make sure and all that kind of stuff. But yes, I understand what you're saying. One more question. I've already kept you over time here, but I am interested in 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 the 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 state of patient care in a cyber event, uh, which you just discussed. You went into different scenarios about the challenges that could come up. The state of patient care, which could be very fluid. What do we have access to? What don't we have access to? What can we do for patients? What are the limitations? What are the impact? In in juxtaposition of the decision around diversion. So as an entity, you're saying, well, here's what we can do. You also want to be informing patients who are either at the system or maybe coming to the system of the current state of care and possible increased risks based on how things have been affected so they can make a decision of whether or not they want to come to your entity and receive care under that situation or do they want to go somewhere else. So that's a bit voluntary, but then it could also be a decision by the health system that says, based on the current environment, we are not accepting patients for the next six hours because we can't do A, B, and C. Uh, you see, all these things are interesting to me and fluid, and but real. Are these not going to be real issues in a real-time situation? Well, let's let's take these. These are two separate things. One is, what do you tell everybody? And secondly, what kind of divert decisions should be made, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of communications, my perspective as an individual, uh, I'm not a lawyer and I, I'm not the CEO of any, <clears throat> any of our companies that make up Kaiser Permanente, but my view is that we need to be transparent if we get hit. We need to tell everybody what's going on so that everybody can know and be fully informed and make the best decisions they can make. In terms of diversion, it isn't as simple as simply saying, we're going to divert. We're not going to accept ambulances. We're not going to accept patients into emergency departments, whatever. These are decisions that are made in conjunction with county and sometimes state leaders, right? Because you know, if everybody goes on divert, let's just take that example. Let's say every hospital in a county goes on divert. Well, then where's anybody going to go get care, right? This is not just the decision of the organization or the decision of the hospital, as I understand it. I'm not, yeah. I'm not in uh, emergency operations, you know, that way. But uh, this is what they tell me. This is my uh -huh. colleagues, right? So it, it's really a collaboration. So my, my colleague, Christian Damef, who's yeah. an emergency physician down at UC San Diego, recently published uh, a, a very well-done article on the impact of the Scripps ransomware attack on the UC San Diego emergency department clinics and hospitals, right? It basically, this five hospital system, Scripps, got, got hit, and they, were, they had their electronic health record down for about a month, you know, like so, pretty much everybody else, right? And, and the impact was pretty well widespread. Now, I, I knew the impact uh, informally on our organization. We we're also in San Diego, Kaiser Permanente. But, uh, you know, we, we generally see mostly our own members. And so we're a little bit more isolated that way. You know, we're sort of a closed system. Although anybody with MTALA can walk into our emergency departments. But, but certainly UC San Diego documented they were hit really hard and it really overwhelmed them in some cases. Um, and this is a five hospital system in a large county. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you know, what if a large system gets hit and goes on divert, you know, and they represent maybe 40, 50 percent of the patient care beds in, in a county? Well, you know, that's just unabsorbable. Yeah. You, you can't double everybody else's uh, 
you know, volume of patients and expect them to be able to deal with. It. So it's very interesting. And, and yeah, you make a good point that the collaboration is even larger. There may be even more voices involved in those decisions than just, uh, you know, your cyber insurance company and the health system leadership. And, um, you know, it could be, you know, more, more folks than that, the FBI. <laughs> so it's really interesting. Um, Dr. Liederman, I'm going to give you an opportunity for any final thought, any final piece of advice you want to give folks out there. Um, as you know, we talked about a lot of stuff today. Uh, any final piece of advice for your colleagues? Yeah, to my cybersecurity colleagues, I thank you. And I encourage you, if you work in a health system environment or healthcare environment, please find people who are my colleagues to partner with. It'll be to your advantage and to the advantage of the organization. And one secret advantage, it isn't so secret because I actually gave a joint talk with our chief information security officer at the HIMSS Global Conference uh, this last spring on this topic. It's actually good job security because if you're making decisions jointly with clinical and other leaders, then the decisions end up not being the best and things go wrong, you'll keep your job. <laughs> 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 right, because it's a joint decision, right? Yes. And then my colleagues who are on my side of the fence, you know, I, I would say step up and and partner actively with your cybersecurity colleagues. Uh, it's to the advantage of everybody. Great, great advice. Uh, wonderful talk, Dr. Liederman. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Anthony. Thanks for inviting me.